Over the, over the past, I don't know, week, over the past week, I've had, I've had something of a, a crisis of confidence. Um, now, I say crisis, and maybe that's too strong a word, because I am still stood up here talking to all you, not quivering in a little ball at home. So let, let, but let's call it a blip, a blip of confidence. Um, it, it actually started, uh, I reckon it started, I've been trying to trace it back, I reckon it started a discussion group. So I often have them at discussion groups. Discussion groups are uh, are tricky. I love discussion groups because I love chatting about how the gospel impacts on things. So I I really enjoyed having a conversation uh, this week, uh, the conversation I had uh, at this week's discussion group. But I often find after a discussion group, I find myself kind of worrying about like, did everyone just, was everyone just like super bored of like listening to me talk about things? Like, was anybody actually interested in, in what I had to say? And so I find myself, often after a discussion group, sort of lying in bed, kind of going over, thinking, like, was everyone just like, I can't believe Ben's banging on about friendship again. Like, like, I find myself worrying about that. And the problem is that once you get in that place, you start seeing it everywhere. So like then at Life Group um, this week, I was at Life Group and I was talking, I was there thinking, is anybody actually interested in anything I'm saying here? Like, am I actually, and then I start thinking, well, I'm not sure I'm interested in what I'm saying. Uh, and if I'm not interested, what are the chance of anyone else being interested? Uh, and so again, on Wednesday evening, you find yourself thinking, man, what was that even all about? What was going on there? And, and as I say, then it starts impacting just your normal conversations with people. So you're chatting to people and you start thinking, like, uh, is anybody, did, are they just looking for an out of this conversation? Are they looking for like, oh, yeah, sorry, I've got to go and like, pick up my dog or something. Like, are they looking for a way to get out of this conversation? Is this, a, is this a conversation that I am imposing on someone else or do they actually want to be having this conversation? Now, it, it might be that I am just overly insecure. I mean, it might, it, it not, that's not in my... It is that. Like, it is at least in part that I'm overly insecure or that, and that I was having a bad week. But my guess is that you, you yourself, are not immune to that problem. My guess is I'm not the only person who struggles with this sense of second-guessing. How are people hearing the things I'm saying? Do people want to be talking to me? Am I just a massive burden on people? Am I just doing people's heads in? You know, I'm, I don't think I'm the only person. Thanks. <laughs> uh, and, <yeah. laughs> um, and of course, my guess is that even this afternoon, there's a chance that you've already found yourself in that situation. Even this a- afternoon, there's a chance that you have already found yourself worried about what everybody thinks of you because of the way you are singing or not singing or the way your children have been behaving or not behaving, uh, or the way that you're dressed, or something that you said in a conversation. Even in the last hour, probably some of you have found yourself feeling kind of insecure and second-guessing those things. And that's just, just someone to buzz that in, thanks. And that's just the last hour. Okay, what about yesterday or the day before? It seems to me that most of us, and I am definitely not excluded from this, most of us are to some degree obsessed by what other people think of us. Uh, And we find ourselves running over that issue over and over again to such an extent that actually many of us feel anxious just being around people. I mean, that's often, isn't that what what feeds so much social anxiety in our culture? It's that we, we worry what people think of us, and so we think it's safer just to avoid being around them. If I'm not around them, I don't lie in bed worrying about what they made of me because I wasn't around them, and so I don't have to worry about it. 
And so suddenly we become anxious about being around people, talking to people, uh, and we, it's tempting just to retreat, largely keep ourselves to ourselves. Now, if I'm right, and I'm not the only person who, who experiences these, these feelings, then, then the question is, what, what's the remedy? Now, I, I was helped out massively this week by... Um, so Michelle and I uh, meet up once a month and we talk about a book. And the book we're talking about at the moment is a book called, I can never remember the name, I can never get in the right order. When, when people are big and God is small, I think that's the order. I, I often get the wrong things big and the wrong things small, but I'm pretty sure it's that. When people are big and God is small. Uh, and this is a book that's all about that, that experience that we have of fearing other people, worrying about too much about what other people think of us and not enough of what God thinks about us. And what that book uh, is really helpful for doing is saying what we need to do is learn to fear God more than we, need, than we fear other people. We need to care more about what God thinks of us than we do about what other people think of us. That, that was such a helpful remedy for me this week, just reading through a chapter of that book and thinking through, why is it that I care so much about what people think of me? And how can I grow how much I care about what God thinks of me? Because the Bible would say that God, what God thinks of me, what God thinks of you, is so much more important than what, than what anybody else thinks about you than what anybody in this room thinks about you, than what anybody in your family thinks about you. The most important thing that matters is what does God think about you? What does God make of you? That's the opinion that really matters. Now, that does lead us to a question, though, which is, well, what does God think of us? Or, or to make it more personal for you, what does God think of you? When, when God looks at you, what does he see? How does he view you? What does he make of you? If you've been with us through the last few weeks of Hosea, looking through Hosea, you'll now be aware that in this poem, what we get is a, a stunning insight into how God views you, how God views us. In fact, it's even more than that. We even get an insight into how God feels about us. How does God feel about you? When, when he sees you, when he watches you, when he thinks about you, what feelings does that stir up in him? And Hosea is unbelievable because it just gives us such an insight into that. But the insight it gives us is a bit of a mixed bag. You couldn't come away from Hosea and be like, great, yeah, just it's all sun and lollipops. I don't know, whatever the saying is. There's probably a saying somewhere there. But you couldn't say that. Because in Hosea, God views his people as, to take some examples, an adulterous wife, a rotten vine, a silly bird who is easily deceived. So he has these views of, these views of you, but, but he also views them as grapes in the desert, as a wife whom he loves, as a woman that he's determined to win their affection. And then, in the most profoundly beautiful chapter in Hosea, probably, we're introduced to another element of how God views us. And that's where we're going to be in Hosea 11. We're going to see God viewing us as his children. That's what we see in Hosea 11. Now, now I know something of what it is to be a, a parent, more specifically a, a dad to children. I, I have four children. Um, and what, at the end of each year, what I do is I put, pull together a, a video of just some of the memories from that year. Some of the pictures, some of the videos, some of the things that have happened in, in that year of, of the life. 
Uh, I've done this ever since the girls were born in 2010, uh, and I continue to do it. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to indulge myself. I'm going to show you one of these videos now. So sit back. Sit back. You've got the quality is, is not the greatest. Um, so you might have to strain your eyes. Um, but uh, sit back. Here you go. Here, here's, here's the video I made in, of the girls' first year uh, of their life. So sit back, have a bit of time off, and enjoy watching the girls be aged 0 to 1. <laughs> now, that, that video conjures up powerful memories for me. Um, I am able to remember that feeling when I first brought them home from the hospital. Um, I can remember the first time that they learned they could play peekaboo with a blanket, the first time they started to walk. Um, it reminds me of the joy that they have brought into my life, how thankful I am for them. Hosea 11 acts in a very similar way, actually. Let, let, me, let me read Hosea 11 to you now. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the balls and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with the cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt, Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God Most High. I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. You see, in this chapter, God allows himself a trip down memory lane. He remembers the love that he felt for his people. Specifically, he remembers that time hundreds of years previously when he had seen the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt and he had heard them cry out to that him and he had loved them. And in his love, he had rescued them. He, he'd taken them by their hands and led them out of the land of Egypt. He, he taught them to walk. He'd given them a leader in the person of Moses. He'd given them good laws to live by. He'd fed them with food from heaven. That verse, verse 5. No, verse 4, the end of verse 4. He's like a new parent, besotted with his child, taking them up in his arms and kissing them on the cheek feeding them, teaching them to walk. 
And as he remembers that, as he casts his mind back to those early days, those days when they were newborns, where he was caring for them and loving them and teaching them to walk and feeding them and kissing them on the cheek, he's, he's suddenly saddened by how that's not now the reality. How could something so beautiful have gone so wrong? He, he's there thinking, I remember when nothing would please them more than being lifted up by me in my hands and being kissed on the cheek, but now they want nothing to do with me. God's heart breaks as he remembers how close they used to be and then thinks about how distant they now are. God's heart breaks as he longs to gather them up in his arms, but they refuse to let him. He longs to be that dad to them again, but they don't want that anymore. They don't want him anymore. And now the picture is he's left calling, calling after them as they march headlong into ruin, pursuing other gods on a destructive path which will destroy them. And in this chapter, you get this insight into God's pain as a parent watching his children ruin their life. But God's not going to be happy just to sit back and watch this happen. It's impossible for him not to act. He can't give up on his children. That's what he says in verse 8. How could I? How could I give up on you? He will keep pursuing them. He will keep calling them back. However determined they are to turn away from them, he is equally and more determined that he will not give up on them, that he will keep calling after them. He's going to be, to take language from the end of the chapter, he's going to be like a lion to them. But this time, not the lion of judgment from chapter 5. No, this time he's going to be like a lion whose roar means safety. A lion who, when he roars, his children come running, desperate to find the protection and safety which this lion offers them. That's the gods we're presented to with in in chapter 11 of Hosea. I just want to return to that question that I was talking about before we got distracted by a video of my children, which is, so what does God make of you? How does God view you? What do we learn from Hosea 11 about how God sees you? Because some of you will have come here this afternoon and you will be pretty sure that God is disappointed with you. You know that you've let him down. And if you're honest, you'd rather not face up to his disappointment. You'd rather avoid him. You just don't want to see his face drop as you stand in front of of him and he says, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. Some of you might feel this afternoon like God is angry towards you. He's angry with you. He's punishing you for something. Some of you might feel like he's indifferent to you. He just doesn't care. Some of you might have come here convinced that God loves you no matter what. And the question is, which which of us is right? Which of us actually sees how God really views us? I want to suggest three things from Hosea 11 that we learn about how God views us. Three things that we can take from this to understand how God sees us. And and here's the first. The first is, God loves you like a parent loves his child. God loves you 
like a parent loves his child. In fact, if anything, his affection for you is even deeper than a parent's affection for their child. God's made you. He, like, he carefully crafted you. And, and more than that, he put something of himself in you. He, he made you in his image. You reflect something of who he is. That, that's the love that God has for all of humanity, every human being made by him, carefully crafted by him, God reflecting something of himself. But more than that, if you are one of his people, so if you, are, if you have been adopted into his family by trusting in Jesus' death on your behalf, finding the forgiveness he offers, then it's more than just that. You're also then his, his treasured possession. Like Israel you are the people who he called. He called to you. He called to you and said, come to me. Be my people. He nurtured you. He fed you. He healed you. He loved you. In a world where every one of us is desperate to know that we are loved, the one thing that Hosea 11 tells us is that we can know that God loves us. Where we have suffered from broken families, where our parents didn't love us, we can know that God is a parent who does love us, who always loves us perfectly, who will never abandon us, who will never let us down, who will never fail to act out of his love for us. Where maybe we grew up in great families, but where maybe we've suffered the loss of our parents, then we can know the fatherly love of God. We can know God's love for us. We can know that he is the parent who never dies, who never leaves. Knowing the truth of Hosea 11 is the most life-giving, the most stabilizing, the most transformational truth that you could ever know. It feeds the worship that we're so desperate to give to something. It feeds that worship and directs it to him. It, it motivates the obedience that we struggle to deliver. It comforts us in our grief. It strengthens us when life is hard. It brings stability when life feels uncertain. It, that's the first thing that we learn from Hosea 11, is that God's love for you is like a parent, but a perfect parent's affection for their child. That's how God sees you. Each one of us here today, none of us are disqualified from that. That is how God sees you. Here's, here's the second thing we learn about how God views each one of us. And it's this. God is heartbroken when we push him away. Heartbroken when we push him away. That's, that's what we mean when we talk as a church about sin. That's what sin is. Sin is a rejection of God, an acceptance of things which God hates. Sin is the idolatry which says, I will worship these other things which didn't make me and don't love me instead of the God who did make me and does love me. 
Sin is the self-reliance which says, I don't need God, I'm going to do it on my own. Sin is the violence which hurts and damages the children God loves. Sin is the destructive behavior which says, I'm going to ignore what God says is good and right, and I'm going to go my own way. God is the hurting parent who sees his children messing things up so badly who experiences the sting of rejection as he calls them, but they refuse to listen. Heartbroken over their determination to ignore him and have nothing to do with him. I don't want you ever to fall into the trap uh, of thinking that our sin, our rejection of God, the way we treat him, the way we take him for granted or ignore his instruction or hurt those he loves. I don't want us ever to fall in the trap of thinking that that doesn't matter or that God doesn't care about that. God is heartbroken at those things. You just see that throughout this chapter of Hosea. He sees his children walking away from him, walking into ruin and destruction, and his heart breaks over them. Imagine how a parent would feel if the child you loved lived like this or treated you in this way. Imagine the pain of feeling that your child wants nothing to do with you. When all you've done is loved them and cared for them and provided for them, all you experience from them is them pushing you away. But more than that, as they push you away, diving headlong into destruction. Imagine the pain you would feel as a parent over that. That is how God feels about our rejection of him. What do we learn about how God views us from Hosea 11? He loves us like a parent loves a child, but he's heartbroken over the way that we reject him when we push him away. Here's the third thing, and I'm going to say this and I'm going to wrap it up. The final thing you learn about God and the way he views you here is that God will never give up on you. Like a parent watching his wayward child run away from him and mess things up, God is desperate for you to return. He is going to keep calling out to you every day of your life. How could he give you up? He loves you. And so as he sees the pain, he doesn't think, well, they brought it on themselves. But instead, his compassion is aroused, longing to spare you from it. Sometimes when we fail, when we treat God like dirt, when we know we've sinned and rebelled against him, sometimes what we do in those moments is we just double down on it. We just feel so unlovable that we just think, well, what's even the point? God could never have any time with me. I've messed up so badly, I might as well just keep going down this path. We feel so unlovable and so we insist that God doesn't love us. People who feel unloved have a tendency to push away people who love them. Sort of in order to prove that no one loves them, that they were right all along. Here's what you need to know about God. However hard you try to push him away, he will not be pushed. God is not going anywhere. However much you rail against him, however far from him you run, however destructive your life, God is never going to give up on you. He will never stop pursuing you. He will never stop calling you back. He will never stop loving you. He will always be there with open arms, ready for you to return. That is the story of Hosea 11. A story of a God who loves you like a parent loves his child. Who's heartbroken at our rejection of him. But he will never give up on us. So it's also 
the story of one of the great stories that Jesus told. A story about a father who had two sons. And one of the sons said to him, I want my inheritance and I want to get as far away from you as I can. And he took the money and he went to a faraway land, as far away from the father who loved him as he could. And he went and he squandered his money on everything that his father would have hated. And he did it until he had nothing left. And then in desperation, he thinks, maybe I can go back to my father. Maybe I can return to him just as a servant. He could never love me anymore. I've treated him so terribly. Maybe I could just go back to him as a servant. And he, and he sets off back practicing the speech. But when he's still a long way off, it turns out the father's been looking out every day for him longing for him to return. And as soon as he sees him there in the distance, the father runs to him. He puts his arms around him. He hugs him. He gives him a ring. He prepares a feast. And he welcomes him back into that family. It seems to me that Jesus probably had Hosea 11 in mind when he told that story. Because the father in this story that Jesus told is the father of Hosea 11. He is the father who loves us, who's heartbroken at our rejection of him, but who will never give up on us. Let me, let me pray for us as we finish.